The Home and the World by Rabindranath Tagore, translated by Surendranath Tagore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Raju from Burleson, Texas, United States. Ramina45 at Hotmail.com Part 2 of Chapter 4 10. My sister-in-law was absorbed in her beetle nuts, the suspicion of a smile playing about her lips, as if nothing untoward had happened. She was still humming the same song. Why has your taco been calling poor Kema names? I burst out. Indeed, the wretch, I will have her broomed out of the house. What a shame to spoil your morning out like this. As for Kima, where are the hussies' manners to go and disturb you when you are engaged? Anyhow, Chota Rani, don't you worry yourself with these domestic squabbles. Leave them to me and return to your friend. How suddenly the wind in the sails of our mind veers round. This going to meet Sandeep outside seemed, in the light of the Zanana code, such an extraordinary out-of-the-way thing to do that. I went off to my own room, at a loss for a reply. I knew this was my sister-in-law's doing, and that she had engaged her maid on to contrive this scene. But I had brought myself to such an unstable poise that I dared not have my fling. Why? It was only the other day that I found I could not keep up to the last the unbending patter with which I had demanded from my husband the dismissal of the man Nanku. I felt suddenly abashed when the Bararani came up and said, It's really all my fault, brother dear. We are old-fashioned folk, and I did not quite like the ways of your Sandeep Babu. So I only told the guard, but how was I to know that our Chotarani would take this as an insult? I thought it would be the other way about. Just my incorrigible silliness. The thing which seems so glorious when viewed from the heights of the country's cause looks so muddy when seen from the bottom. One begins by getting angry and then feels disgusted. I shut myself into my room, sitting by the window, thinking how easy life would be if only one could keep in harmony with one's surroundings. How simply the senior Rani sits in her veranda with her beetle nuts and how inaccessible to me has become my natural seat beside my daily duties. Where will it all end? I asked myself. Shall I ever recover as from a delirium and forget it all? Or am I to be dragged to depths from which there can be no escape in this life? How on earth did I manage to let my good fortune escape me and spoil my life so? Every wall of this bedroom of mine, which I first entered nine years ago as a bride, stares at me in dismay. When my husband came home after his M.A. examination, he brought me this orchid belonging to some faraway land beyond the seas. From beneath these few little leaves sprang such a cascade of blossoms. It looked as if they were pouring forth from some overturned urn of beauty. We decided together to hang it here over this window. It flowered only that once, but we have always been in hope of its doing so once more. Curiously enough, I have kept on watering it these days from force of habit and it is still green. It's now four years since I framed a photograph of my husband in ivory and put it in the niche over there. If I happen to look that way, I have to lower my eyes. Up to last week, I used regularly to put there the flowers of my worship every morning after my bath. My husband has often chided me over this. It shames me to see you place me on a height to which I do not belong, he said one day. What nonsense! I am not only ashamed but also jealous. 
Just hear him, jealous of whom, pray. Of that false me. It only shows that I am too petty for you, that you want some extraordinary man who can overpower you with his superiority, and so you needs must take refuge in making for yourself another me. This kind of talk only makes me angry, said I. What is the use of being angry with me, he replied. Blame your fate which allowed you no choice, but made you take me blindfold. This keeps you trying to retrieve its wonder by making me out a paragon. I felt so hurt at the bare idea that tears started to my eyes that day, and whenever I think of that now, I cannot raise my eyes to the niche. For now, there is another photograph in my jewel case. The other day, when arranging the sitting room, I brought away the double photo frame, the one in which Sandeep's portrait was next to my husband's. To this portrait, I have no flowers of worship to offer, but it remains hidden away under my gems. It has all the greater fascination because kept secret. I look at it now and then with doors closed. At night, I turn up the lamp and sit with it in my hand, gazing and gazing. And every night I think of burning it in the flame of the lamp, to be done with it forever. But every night I heave a sigh and smother it again in my pearls and diamonds. Ah, wretched woman! What a wealth of love has twined round each one of these jewels. Oh, why am I not dead? Sandip had impressed it on me that hesitation is not in the nature of woman. For her, neither right nor left has any existence. She only moves forward. When the women of our country wake up, he repeatedly insisted, their voice will be unmistakably confident in its utterance of the cry, I want. I want. Sandip went on one day. This was the primal word at the root of all creation. It had no maxim to guide it, but it became fire and wrought itself into suns and stars. Its partiality is terrible because it had a desire from man. It ruthlessly sacrificed millions of beasts for millions of years to achieve that desire. That terrible word I want has taken flesh in woman, and therefore men who are cowards try with all their might to keep back this primeval flood with their earthen dikes. They are afraid lest, laughing and dancing as it goes, it should wash away all the hedges and props of their pumpkin field. Men in every age flatter themselves that they have secured this force within the bounds of their convenience, but it gathers and grows. Now it's calm and deep like a lake, but gradually its pressure will increase, the dikes will give way, and the force which has so long been dumb will rush forward with a roar, I want. These words of Sandip echo in my heart beats like a war drum. They shape into silence all my conflicts with myself. What do I care? What people may think of me? Of what value are that orchid and that niche in my bedroom? What power have they to belittle me, to put me to shame? The primal fire of creation burns in me. I felt a strong desire to snatch down the orchid and fling it out of the window, to denude the niche of its picture, to lay bare and naked the unshamed spirit of destruction that raged within me. My arm was raised to do it, but a sudden pang passed through my breast. Tears started to my eyes. I threw myself down, sobbed. What is the end of all this? What is the end? Sandeep's Story 4 when I read these pages of the story of my life, I seriously question myself, is this Sandip? Am I made of words? Am I merely a book with a covering of flesh and blood? The earth is not a dead thing like the moon. 
she breathes. Her rivers and oceans send up vapors in which she is clothed. She is covered with a mantle of her own dust which flies about the air. The onlooker, gazing upon the earth from the outside, can see only the light reflected from this vapor and this dust. The tracks of the mighty continents are not distinctly visible. The man who is alive as this earth is, is likewise always enveloped in the mist of the ideas which he is breathing out. His real land and water remain hidden, and he appears to be made of only lights and shadows. It seems to me, in this story of my life, that like a living plant, I am displaying the picture of an ideal world. But I am not merely what I want, what I think. I am also what I do not love, what I do not wish to be. My creation had begun before I was born. I had no choice in regard to my surroundings, and so must make the best of such material as comes to my hand. My theory of life makes me certain that the great is cruel. To be just is for ordinary men. It is reserved for the great to be unjust. The surface of the earth was even. The volcano butted it with its fiery horn and found its own eminence. Its justice was not towards its obstacle, but towards itself. Successful injustice and genuine cruelty have been the only forces by which individual or nation has become millionaire or monarch. That is why I preach the great discipline of injustice. I say to everyone, deliverance is based upon injustice. Injustice is the fire which must be kept on burning something in order to save itself from becoming ashes. Whenever an individual or nation becomes incapable of perpetrating injustice, it is swept into the dustbin of the world. As yet, this is only my idea. It is not completely myself. There are rifts in the armor through which something peeps out which is extremely soft and sensitive, because, as I say, the best part of myself was created before I came to this stage of existence. From time to time, I tried my followers in their lesson of cruelty. One day we went on a picnic. A goat was grazing by. I asked them, Who is there among you that can cut off a leg of that goat alive with his knife and bring it to me? While they all hesitated, I went myself and did it. One of them fainted at the sight, but when they saw me unmoved, they took the dust of my feet, saying that I was above all human weaknesses. That is to say, they saw that day the vaporous envelope, which was my idea, but failed to perceive the inner me, which by a curious freak of fate has been created tender and merciful. In the present chapter of my life, which is growing in interest every day round Bimala and Nickel, there is also much that remains hidden underneath. This malady of ideas which afflicts me is shaping my life within. Nevertheless, a great part of my life remains outside its influence, and so there is set up a discrepancy between my outward life and its inner design, which I try my best to keep concealed even from myself, otherwise it may wreck not only my plans, but my very life. Life is indefinite, a bundle of contradictions. We men, with our ideas, strive to give it a particular shape by melting it into a particular mold into the definiteness of success. All the world conquerors, from Alexander down to the American millionaires, mold themselves into a sword or a mint, and thus find that distinct image of themselves which is the source of their success. The chief controversy between Nikhil and myself arises from this, that though I say know thyself, and Nikhil also says know thyself, his interpretation makes this knowing tantamount to not knowing. 
Winning your kind of success, Nikhil once objected, is success gained at the cost of the soul, but the soul is greater than success. I simply said in answer, your words are too vague. That I cannot help, Nikhil replied. A machine is distinct enough, but not so life. If to gain distinctness, you try to know life as a machine, then such mere distinctness cannot stand for truth. The soul is not as distinct as success, and so you only lose your soul if you seek it in your success. Where then is this wonderful soul? Where it knows itself in the infinite and transcends its success. But how does all this apply to our work for the country? It is the same thing. Where our country makes itself the final object, it gains success at the cost of the soul. Where it recognizes the greatest as greater than all, there it may miss success but gains its soul. Is there any example of this in history? Man is so great that he can despise not only the success but also the example. Possibly example is lacking just as there is no example of the flower and the seed. But there is the urgence of the flower and the seed all the same. It is not that I do not at all understand Nichols' point of view. That is rather where my danger lies. I was born in India and the poison of its spirituality runs in my blood. However loudly I may proclaim the madness of walking in the path of self-abnegation, I cannot avoid it altogether. This is exactly how such curious anomalies happen nowadays in our country. We must have our religion and also our nationalism, our Bhagavad Gita and also our Bande Mataram. The result is that both of them suffer. It is like performing with an English military band side by side with our Indian festive pipes. I must make it the purpose of my life to put an end to this hideous confusion. I want the Western military style to prevail, not the Indian. We shall then not be ashamed of the flag of our passion, which Mother Nature has sent with us as our standard into the battlefield of life. Passion is beautiful and pure, pure as the lily that comes out of the slimy soil. It rises superior to its defilement and needs no pure soap to wash it clean. 5. A question has been worrying me the last few days. Why am I allowing my life to become entangled with Vimalas? Am I a drifting log to be caught up at any and every obstacle? Not that I have any false shame at Vimalas becoming an object of my desire. It's only too clear how she wants me, and so I look on her as quite legitimately mine. The fruit hangs on the branch by the stem but that is no reason why the claim of the stem should be eternal. Ripe fruit cannot forever swear by its slackening stem hold. All its sweetness has been accumulated for me. To surrender itself to my hand is the reason of its existence, its very nature, its true morality. So I must pluck it, for it becomes me not to make it futile. But what is teasing me is that I am getting entangled. Am I not born to root? To bestride my proper steed, the crowd, and drive it as I will, the reins in my hand, the destination known only to me, and for it the thorns, the mire on the road. This steed now awaits me at the door, pawing and champing its bit, its neighing filling the skies. But where am I, and what am I about, letting day after day golden opportunities slip by? I used to think I was like a storm that the torn flowers with which I strewed my path would not impede my progress. But I am only wandering round and round 
a flower like a bee, not a storm. So, as I was saying, the coloring of ideas which man gives himself is only superficial. The inner man remains as ordinary as ever. If someone who could see right into me were to write my biography, he would make me out to be no different from that lout of Panchu or even from Nikhil. Last night, I was turning over the pages of my old diary. I had just graduated and my brain was bursting with philosophy. Even so early, I had vowed not to harbor any illusions, whether of my own or others' imagining, but to build my life on a solid basis of reality. But what has since been its actual story? Where is its solidity? It has rather been a network where, though the thread be continuous, more space is taken up by the holes. Fight as I may, these will not own defeat. Just as I was congratulating myself on steadily following the thread, here I am badly caught in a hole, for I have become susceptible to compunctions. I want it. It's here. Let me take it. This is a clear-cut, straightforward policy. Those who can pursue its course with vigor needs must win through in the end. But the gods would not have it that such journey should be easy. So they have deputed the siren sympathy to distract the wayfarer, to dim his vision with a tearful mist. I can see that poor Bimala is struggling like a snared deer. What a piteous alarm there is in her eyes. How she is torn with straining at her bonds. This sight, of course, should gladden the heart of a true hunter. And so do I rejoice. But then I am also touched, and therefore I dally, and standing on the brink, I am hesitating to pull the noose fast. There have been moments, I know, when I could have bounded up to her, clasped her hands, and folded her to my breast, unresisting. Had I done so, she would not have said one word. She was aware that some crisis was impending, which in a moment would change the meaning of the whole world. Standing before that cavern of the incalculable, but yet expected, her face went pale and her eyes glowed with a fearful ecstasy. Within that moment, when it arrives, an eternity will take shape which our destiny avoids holding its breath. But I have let this moment slip by. I did not, with uncompromising strength, press the almost certain into the absolutely assured. I now see clearly that some hidden elements in my nature have openly ranged themselves as obstacles in my path. That is exactly how Ravana, whom I look upon as the real hero of the Ramayana, met with his doom. He kept Sita in his Ashoka garden, awaiting her pleasure, instead of taking her straight into his harem. This weak spot in his otherwise grand character made the whole of the abduction episode futile. Another such touch of compunction made him disregard and be lenient to his traitorous brother Bibishan, only to get himself killed for his pains. Thus does the tragic in life come by its own. In the beginning it lies, a little thing, in some dark underwall, and ends by overthrowing the whole superstructure. The real tragedy is that man does not know himself for what he really is. 6. Then again there is Nickel, crank though he be. Laugh at him as I may. I cannot get rid of the idea that he is my friend. At first I gave no thought to his point of view but of late it has begun to shame and hurt me. Therefore, I have been trying to talk and argue with him in the same enthusiastic way as of old. But it does not ring true. 
It is even leading me at times into such a length of unnaturalness as to pretend to agree with him. But such hypocrisy is not in my nature, nor in that of Nikhil either. This, at least, is something we have in common. That's why nowadays I would rather not come across him and have taken to fighting shy of his presence. All these are signs of weakness. No sooner is the possibility of a wrong admitted than it becomes actual and clutches you by the throat. However, you may then try to shake off all belief in it. What I should like to be able to tell Nikhil frankly is that happenings such as these must be looked in the face as great realities and that which is the truth should not be allowed to stand between two friends. There is no denying that I have really weakened. It was not this weakness which won over Bimala. She burnt her wings in the blaze of the full strength of my unhesitating manliness. Whenever smoke obscures its luster, she also becomes confused and draws back. Then comes a thorough revulsion of feeling, and she fain would take back the garland she has put round my neck but cannot and so she only closes her eyes to shut it out of sight but all the same i must not swerve from the path i have chopped up it would never do to abandon the cause of the country especially at the present time i shall simply make bimala one with my country the turbulent west wind which has swept away the country's veil of conscience will sweep away the veil of the wife from bimala's face and in that uncovering there will be no shame the ship will rock as it bears the crowd across the ocean, flying the pennant of Bande Madharam, and it will serve as a cradle to my power as well as to my love. Bimala will see such a majestic vision of deliverance that her bonds will slip from about her without shame, without her even being aware of it. Fascinated by the beauty of this terrible wrecking power, she will not hesitate a moment to be cruel. I have seen in Bimala's nature the cruelty which is the inherent force of existence the cruelty which with its unrelenting might keeps the world beautiful. If only women could be set free from the artificial fetters put round them by men, we could see on earth the living image of Kali, the shameless, pitiless goddess. I am a worshipper of Kali, and one day I shall truly worship her, setting Bimala on her altar of destruction. For this let me get ready. The way of retreat is absolutely closed for both of us, we shall despoil each other, get to hate each other, but never more be free. End of chapter 4 The Home and the World by Rabindranath Tagore Translated by Surendranath Tagore Recording by Raju from Burleson, Texas, United States Ramina45 at hotmail.com